Good morning, everybody. Hope fall is treating you well. This is Joe here at Frequency. Time for another Amped interview. Today, we're chatting with Lisa Fenn, a former producer with ESPN, who recently released a book called Carry On, and I just loved it, and had to reach out to her publicist to get her on the show. Great interview, wonderful book. Hope you enjoy it, and have a great fall. God bless. Frequency.fm presents The Amped Interview. Well, good morning, Lisa Finn. Thank you for joining us this morning on the Frequency Podcast. Um, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, the primary reason that you're here, and I think it's not a surprise to, to you, um, uh, nor for our listeners, is we're going to talk about your book, Carry On. And I want to let um, the folks who are listening know that when the book showed up on my doorstep, I knew before I read it, just just reading like the back cover, that I wanted to talk to you about this because it's just compelling from word go. Um, would you take a moment and tell people a little bit um, about kind of a, the lead into the story um, that you're presenting in Carry On? Sure. Uh, overall, Carry On's a memoir of resilience, redemption, and an unlikely family. It tells the story of three very different people, people of different races, cultures, ages, spiritual beliefs, and ability levels. And it looks at what happens at the unexpected intersection of those three lives. And I am one of them. It began in 2009 when I was working as a journalist at ESPN, and my niche was sort of stories of inspiration. And one day I came across a rather gripping newspaper photo of two high school athletes from the Midwest, Cleveland, actually. With it was a short article explaining how Leroy Sutton had lost his legs in a childhood train accident. He was a double amputee, and he frequently traveled around on the back of his best friend, D'Artagnan Crockett, who was legally blind. And together they attended a high school with a graduation rate of less than 40%. So here was this picture of Leroy Sutton, double amputee, on the back of D'Artagnan Crockett, who is legally blind. If I had to boil down that photo to a tagline, I think it would have been the one who could not walk being carried by the one who could not see. I just couldn't look away from the photo, and I knew I had to find them. That um, I just wondered who they were, how life brought them together, and really what could be learned from them. And I, the thing that I love about this as much as anything is the way that you were introduced to them was by your dad, who saw the newspaper article. And I guess he just apparently felt the need to occasionally call you and tell you because of what you do. Oh, here's one. You should check this one out. And then you were like there that day, right? Yeah, my dad is a avid sports fan. I grew up in a big sporting house. And so he always was hoping to find my next great sports story. <laughs> um, I've been doing this for about 10 years at that point. He had yet to find it. <laughs> but <laughs> on that morning, he was the one who called and alerted me to this photo. And I looked at it on the computer. And I just, I had seen a lot of things in my career, but I had never seen a photograph like that before. And so I hightailed it into the office. I convinced my boss to let me hop a plane that very morning, which was necessary because 
these boys were having the last wrestling match of their high school careers that day. So if I was going to find them and um, film them wrestling, it was going to have to be then. So he took a gamble, my boss did, and five hours later I walked into their gym in Cleveland. I'd flown from Connecticut. And uh, and then you got to, to watch watch them wrestle and they thought that um they were going to be featured on sports center i think was kind of the original assumption and um god bless them because <laughs> um that must have been a lot of pressure for them to have somebody just show up out of nowhere um, and uh, uh realizing that they had been covered in the local paper which is what what brought you there um but uh, w- one thing i want to just kind of introduce because this jumped out at me early on in the book is you're setting the stage for this story is um, having a conversation with Travis, uh, uh, who's just kind of featured briefly in this initial part of the book, who's a quadriplegic. And he says, um, they were all very concerned with where I was going after this life, but not terribly interested in sitting with me through the hard times of this one. And that felt like the quote that leads us into the rest of the rest of uh, the book um, thematically. And, do you think that's accurate? And, and how does that play in with maybe the faith lives of, of Leroy and D'Artagnan? Well, Travis, who you're alluding to, Travis Roy was a, a very highly touted college hockey player from Boston University. And his first game of his freshman year, he took an awkward hit into the boards and he was rendered a quadriplegic. Yeah. I met him 10 years after his accident when I did a story on the anniversary of it. Um, and he, he was, he was delightful. I enjoyed every minute I spent with him and I still do. We're close friends now, but he did make a comment as we were, we were talking about some faith issues that he's, he had kind of, um, lost interest in God in part because after his accident, people around the world were quick to mail him Bibles and evangelical tracts and books about Johnny Erickson Tata. But yet he sort of sat alone in his hospital and his rehab facility. And then when he was back at home and he said, people were really interested to, to tell me about God's love, but I certainly didn't feel very loved. And it did just impress upon me how when people are suffering, that they're not looking for literature and they're not looking for arguments as to why this has happened to them, but they're really just looking for a compassionate relationship for people to sit in the mystery of their suffering with them um, and be the gospel, be the love and faithfulness that they yearn for. Yeah. Um, I was reading a devotional to my son just last night that talked about the difference between uh, love the emotion and, and love the action. Yeah. Um, and that we, um, you know, that, um, that Christ has called us to act, uh, that, that love uh, isn't really fulfilled or really demonstrated without the action that goes along with it. Um, yeah. And I think that your engagement uh, and we we need to bring people up to up to speed on this, but your engagement with Leroy and, and D'Artagnan is just a beautiful representation of that. Um, the there was a a point in the book uh, that I think uh, is also pretty telling, where um, Coach Robinson suggests um, as you're trying to engage with Leroy, who's um, keeps you at a distance, that uh, maybe he saw you as a turkey lady, um, which struck me as something of. Um, maybe a practical response based on his experience. 
How did you get past the, and maybe you could tell people what a turkey lady is, but how did you, but maybe how you got past that? Sure. Well, just to back up a hair, when I first walked into the gym and I saw these boys, their coach, Coach Robinson, approached me and I stuck out my hand to introduce myself and he sort of slapped it away and he said, you know, we don't really need to know each other's names. All you need to know is that you've been sent here by God today. Yeah. So that really blew me away. But he went on to explain that every day he walked the track praying for his athletes. And he said, this year, I've been praying hard for D'Artagnan and Leroy because they're seniors. And once they graduate, this world's got nothing for them. And so he really felt that ESPN walking into his gym was no coincidence. And as I observed them and and spoke to them a little bit over that weekend, I grew to understand what he meant. They had. They both had life-altering disabilities. They lived in abject poverty. They didn't have parents involved in their lives. They went to a high school with a graduation rate of less than 40%. Both of them had experienced homelessness, loss, trauma, all before the age of 18. But what stood out to me even more than that was that their primary coping mechanism was not things like drugs. It wasn't gangs. It wasn't a sense of entitlement. It was this really cheerful, beautiful friendship, how D'Artagnan literally carried Leroy yeah. on his back. And the carrying, to me at least, was a symbol for the caring. So, so there was just really something special about them. That said, you're right, Leroy wouldn't speak to me the first week that I was there. Um had a scowl on his face, put his headphones in whenever I got near. D'Artagnan was much more chatty. Yeah. Leroy, I didn't really understand his reaction. And as I took the risk of visiting him at his grandmother's house later that week, he still wouldn't speak to me. And that's when his coach said, oh, give him time. He probably thinks just a turkey lady. And he explained that a turkey lady was one of the was someone from the the richer, whiter side of town who would come in and donate food on Thanksgiving and then go back to their warm, stable home. Um, and so that was really striking to me. I didn't necessarily consider myself a turkey lady, but it did impress upon me the need for um, a long, sort of more of a long-term commitment to demonstrate to Leroy that I cared about him or that I wanted to care about him. Well, it seems to me that it didn't take you very long before you were um, before you were engaging with your husband Navid to say, "Should not we take this opportunity to ha- to be more involved?" basically, to take a a larger role in the lives of these uh, two young men. Well, I filmed with Leroy and D'Artagnan for the better part of five months, which is about four months longer than I usually film (laughs) with anyone. Um, But it took a long time to help them get comfortable on camera. It took a long time to really understand um, who they were, what made them tick. They weren't accustomed to having people ask how they felt about things, um... And so it took time to to get through that. But as I did and I got to know them better, I really my affections for them just grew and grew. I admired how how they got through life with each other as their coping mechanism. Um, I, I also just grew to understand the onion layers of poverty that that were looking to suffocate the dreams that they had for themselves. Um you know, I grew up believing or being taught that with hard work and determination, anything was possible. 
And here I was sitting in their communities and it felt like nothing was possible. It felt really hopeless. Yeah. And, but as I got to know more about them, really my own worldview was challenged. And I started to see how generational cycles of poverty were at work. I grew to see that being poor and being homeless had less to do with running out of money and everything to do with running out of useful relationships in your lives. And I wanted, you know, to be the answer to their coaches' prayers. I wanted to be part of their solution. I just didn't know how. Certainly, I said to my husband, we've got to bring them to our house. They're going to move in with us. (laughs) And we didn't have children at that point yet. And the idea of um, bringing in two 18-year-old disabled individuals was was daunting. But we prayed and prayed for some way to help them um, get out of their situations and to reach their potential. And that began to happen once my story aired on ESPN in 2009 about Leroy and D'Artagnan's friendship. And it moved hundreds, um, a thousand people to come forward offering money to lift them out of poverty and to fund some of their dreams. And that was really the beginning of how our long-term relationship with one another began. And I think it's really an apt thing to say because you know, uh, a lot of stories, you know, kind of end with the, you now have a home piece of it and don't necessarily address really the second half of that, which is how your family system changes um, when you have people um, from different backgrounds, different um, families of origin coming together. Um, there's a storming period as you come to know each other. And and these are two boys that, um, uh, as we were talking before this started, that are bringing a lot of baggage. I hate to use the word baggage, but they're bringing a lot their, their bucket of stuff with them, mm-hmm. um, including the stuff that they never received. Maybe you could t- take a, a minute or two, if you don't mind, to talk about um, some of the challenges that you had um, after you became engaged as a family. Definitely. Well, after their story aired and literally tens of thousands of dollars poured in to get them off to college, and I just thought, well, that's easy. We've cured this poverty thing. I went to a private school, so I just thought you graduate high school and you're ready for college. Yeah. So as I got them off to school, um, it quickly became apparent that the landmines between their dreams and their realities were too much for them to navigate on their own. I had sort of put them on television as these superhero figures overcoming everything in their path. But then when it came time to handle adult responsibilities, I saw they had none of the life skills or academic skills they needed to become self-sufficient. They essentially had fifth grade math levels, eighth grade reading levels, not because they were unintelligent, but because they had um, their public school education was just not sufficient for college prep. Neither one of them could hold on to a dollar, hit a deadline, pay a bill or organize a day. Yeah. So we had to work tirelessly over five or seven years to try to bridge these gaps, to teach them how to navigate adult responsibilities from classwork, tutoring, banking, budgeting, customer service calls, disability services. And those early years were marked by constant failure because even what I learned was that even minor challenges can feel like major threats to people coming out of the toxic stress of poverty. It was like everything in life prepared them to endure a problem, but nothing ever taught them that they could solve a problem. 
And so we had to reprogram those mindsets and it was not the quick fix that I expected, but we kept at it. And, um, as we did, our bonds grew deeper. Our conversation turned naturally to vital topics like relationships and coping mechanisms and the traumas of their youth. And eventually we, through all of that conversation, which was really more like therapy, they began to take small steps forward. Um, and I would just celebrate every little victory. I was so proud of them. Excellent. Well, and I just want to affirm you because, um, well, first of all, I mean, you've got, you seem just like you're hardwired to adopt. I'd, I'd love to learn more about that specifically, mm-hmm. but that you kind of um, transcend that idea of turkey lady to, to the nth degree. It's um, not, here's your turkey and they disappear, but that you embraced not just the, you know, join our family, but being dedicated to work through all all of those other things to ensure that these boys are going to be prepared to navigate life and to be successful in life itself. So I thought I spoke with a very wise psychologist halfway through our journey together who, um, you know, we were having some hard times and I really didn't think Leroy and D'Artagnan were going to be able to, to make up the lost ground to work through the baggage and, and time to become self-sufficient adults. I wasn't sure. And this man said to me, you know, it took 18 years to make this mess. It may take just as long to unravel it. So you decide if you're in or out. And I thought, I just looked at them and knew that so much of what they endured, all of what they endured was not their fault. Um, And they, I saw the potential in them. There was a lot of potential in that rubble and it deserved to be discovered. That's great. Well, thank you. One other thing I want to touch on um, toward the end of the book, there's kind of a special moment there where D'Artagnan goes to London for the Paralympics. And um, I don't, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want us to tell the whole, uh, like the whole book because I want people to go buy the book. Um, But uh, do you mind if we touch on that just briefly to, to kind of share that little story? Sure. Well, it wouldn't, um, being that I'm an ESPN, I was the ESPN producer, there's obviously some elements of the great underdog sports story here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, D'Artagnan is a phenomenally gifted athlete. Despite his visual impairment, he is, he is just genetically gifted in terms of his muscularity, his strength, his athletic ability. He was a very good wrestler. And as a result of my story airing on ESPN, the U.S. Paralympics noticed him and invited him to Colorado Springs to the Olympic Training Center to train in the sport of blind judo. Okay. He was not, he knew nothing about judo prior to this, but being in sports, I knew that the opportunity to live at the Olympic Training Center was akin to a winning lottery ticket for a kid for, like him. And so I encouraged him really to take this opportunity, and he, he did so excitedly. Most judo athletes start as young kids. It's it's definitely a pedigree sport. And so for him to pick it up at the age of 18, the coaches thought, well, maybe if if he trains tirelessly, maybe by 2016, 2020, he'll he'll have a chance at competing on the world stage. Well, you can never underestimate D'Artagnan, and he really took – um, that challenge by the horns. And in fact, two years later in 2012, he qualified for the Paralympic games in London and shocked everyone. 
how how did he shock people? Uh, I don't know if you, do you want no, to. He shocked them just by qualifying. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and he shocked them once he was there as well. And that's the part that I will leave open-ended so people okay. can or watch for themselves. Because Perfect. it's pretty spectacular. Okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> sure if you were going to keep heading that direction and I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, my family and I watched judo on the Olympics, the regular Olympics this past year. And we just stood there going, what? what is this? Because <laughs> it's just a, it's, um, it's just like not anything else you would see because it's so, the, the movements are so minute and uh, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Well, what you don't know is that what most people don't know is that judo is the number two sport in the world behind soccer. Is it really? Yes. And Japan, France, Spain, um, you know, the Eastern Bloc countries, South America, judo, they're judo crazy countries. And judo athletes are paid handsomely as professionals to train. Uh, wow. It's just here that nobody knows anything about it. Well, clearly, yeah, I'm, I'm ignorant to that. Um, and so that what makes it all the harder of a sport for a newbie to break into at a late age because it's not like he's going curling where you can. You know, it's not a high, well, I don't want to insult curlers, but. Uh, <laughs> no, but I know what you mean. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of those. Yeah, it's the sport in the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you, um, I, you know, there's certain sports, you know, you grow up, you watch football on TV or you watch baseball and your exposure to that gives you some sense of strategy and, and, and the basics of, the, of how it works. But to be introduced at 18 to this sport that he's never been exposed to and then to turn that around in a few years to be, you know, somebody who qualified for the Olympics and the story <laughs> continues. That's pretty yeah. crazy. That's I mean, that just tells you um, <clears throat> amazing stuff. A couple of things I just wanted to explore a little bit that are kind of tangents in the off of the book a bit, but that I just was curious about throughout the book, the, um, your relationship with your dad, you know, he had kind of a, um, a, some fearful moments as a young man that led to his way he perceived people of different races, different backgrounds. That didn't necessarily translate to you, but I think it did impact you some with your own, some struggles that you had with your own racial preconceptions. Um, how was that for you and um, that relationship? Yeah, my um, relationship with my dad in regards to race has it started out difficult and we've definitely now come to a place of great understanding and unity. Okay. I was, he, well, he, he and I were both raised in Cleveland and, but he was brought up, you know, in the fifties at a time when Cleveland was legally segregated. Yeah. And so he went to segregated schools and he never had any, any interaction um, with people of color and was taught by his, teachers and his parents and by the law that it was dangerous. Yeah. Um, and so as I was growing up, even though the schools were being desegregated in his mind, separate was still safer. I was always sort of embarrassed by that mindset that he had. I didn't understand where it came from at the time. I yeah. didn't understand as a child, the damaging effects of segregation and how those mold a person like him. So even though the initial phone call for my story on Leroy and D'Artagnan came from him, um, he did not like me filming in Cleveland's rougher neighborhoods, and especially with African-Americans. I, on the other hand, sort of reveled in the chance to show him that I had evolved from his, his beliefs 
And yet I did find that when I spent time with Leroy and D'Artagnan and their families, and when I tried to navigate their environments, that I struggled. It was like there was an elephant in every room, and that elephant was me. Because I was uncomfortable being the minority. I hadn't experienced that before. I was uncomfortable sitting in abject poverty. I was uncomfortable with the chaos of it all. Really, the primary exposure I had had to people of color was either through the media um, serving in a soup kitchen or at the time observing my aunt who was a county prosecutor and so I was usually mm-hmm. seeing people of color led away in handcuffs yeah. um, I had I but over the course of these five months I really forced myself to to become comfortable I wanted to get past that. And so we, I sat and I listened and I asked questions and I saw that um, these people were had the same dreams and aspirations and, and heartaches that I had and that their lives were deeply challenged because of the onion layers of poverty, because they were only two or three generations removed from slavery. Yeah. Um, and it really changed my worldview. It also helped me understand my father's views because it comes down to proximity, doesn't it? Proximity really breeds compassion and understanding. It's the distance that breeds fear. Um, and once I, I, once you get to know someone's story, it becomes impossible to fear them or to hate them. And So that was a transformation that was really happening in my heart and has now extended to my father's heart as well through this story, through getting to know Lyra and D'Artagnan, through adopting our son. um, My dad now really does look at people differently with much greater compassion. He's interested in their stories. He's the first one wanting to throw birthday parties for his black grandson. (laughs) it's been a powerful, powerful transformation in, in our family. Um, and it all began, it all came about in a story that he unknowingly began. That's fantastic. It's wonderful to, it's wonderful to see those changes. Uh, I want to affirm you for bringing your dad along, uh, and for him being willing to come along through that. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, what's, what's your family system look like today, you know, between, um, your husband, Leroy D'Artagnan, and I guess, a couple other kids, maybe you could share about that. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things that I detail in this memoir is the just the challenges and the joys and more of the challenges of becoming a mother to four children of different ages, races, cultures, and ability levels all in two years. Uh, it was definitely not the family that my husband and I planned on, but we found that it's um, far richer and far better than anything we could dreamed of. So Leroy and D'Artagnan today, after years of having hope and love and stability infused into their lives, have gone on to do some really inspiring, amazing things. As I said, there was so much potential buried in that rubble. Um, D'Artagnan is still living and training in Colorado. He's finishing his associate's degree this fall and transferring uh, into a four-year social work program next January. Leroy is the first person in his family who finished high school and now college, and he's working in the video game industry, which was always his dream. 
So they are in separate states, yet we talk almost every day and still work together on challenges that they have. We travel the country speaking together to share our story. Um, it really serves, I think, as a portrait of hope and love across socioeconomic and racial lines. It really shows what's possible when the love of Christ is at the forefront. My son that we adopted in 2009 is now seven years old, and he sees Lira and D'Artagnan as his big brothers and his role models, which is a special relationship. Yeah. And then uh, about a year and a half after we adopted our son, I gave birth to our daughter. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a blended, high-octane, fantastic... <laughs> High octane's awesome. Mess of kids. <laughs> that's a that's I love that. That's a great term, um, and I think it, uh, it it's very descriptive of um, what's got to be a diverse, high energy um, household uh, or just dynamic there. Um, it is dynamic. The book also details though just the struggles that I had as we were setting out. Um, I think it's easy to say, "Wow, we've got this amazing family now," but it wasn't. I mean, spiritually, I think it was the most difficult period of my life I'd ever gone through. It was the most distant I felt from God, even though I felt like I was obeying and following his will as closely as I ever had. Um, and the book really chronicles the struggles that I went through questioning God in the times of suffering and hardship um, and how I came out on the other side of that. So it wasn't all cupcakes and rainbows and we don't try <laughs> <laughs> away from that at all <laughs> yeah cupcakes and rainbows that's good well i'm going to thank you for sharing but before um before we end our conversation today first thing i want to i just want to encourage people who are listening to pick up the book i was uh, telling lisa before we started a lot of books show up on my doorstep this is the first book in a while and that's not taking away from any of the authors i've spoken to recently where i made myself sit down on the couch and shut off um, all the electronic devices and distractions and read like I haven't read in probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's a lovely, it's a lovely memoir and uh, it's deeply touching and um, it's just a, a wonderful, worthy read. I, I can't imagine that the gift that you have given um, by um, bringing the boys into your family and uh, and adopting your seven-year-old, and th there's got to be some way that we can support you in that as we're listening to this. How could we do that? Well, we the boys have a website called www.carryontrust.org where uh, viewers and supporters have gone over the years to help with their educational expenses and their medical costs. There's a lot of um, secondary medical costs that come from being a double amputee. Oh, yeah. Um, support services, adaptive equipment. And uh, and then also just for D'Artagnan, who's still in school, his tuition costs and his adaptive services and his tutoring needs. And so money that um, is shared through that website goes strictly for those two, those two needs. Um we help them as best as we can. There's other families who have come alongside us to help them as well. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of costs uh, that are incurred. So we, we appreciate and are grateful for, for all the help that, 
that we've been given and continue to give. So it's www.carryontrust.org. Great. And we'll, um, we'll include that uh, link there as well, but it's obviously easy to remember. If it's on your heart to do so, visit the site and uh, contribute a little bit because they, uh, even a couple of bucks, these, these things add up and um, take some of the, 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 the burden financially off, uh, off of the family. So um, folks who are listening, pray about it and then act on it. Uh, <laughs> Lisa, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate your time this morning. I, I really appreciate your book. There's a lot of other questions that I had written down that I thought we would have time to ask, but I can ask those when we're done recording. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Frequency.fm is a podcast featuring Christian artists, authors, creatives, and experts. For more music reviews, book reviews, and articles, please visit us at Frequency.fm.